I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You can't sort of take Prophet Muhammad's role as a politician and a state builder and a head of a proto-state in Medina and pretend that, that that has no bearing on what Islam is. That just wouldn't make sense. As you all know, this podcast is no stranger to dissecting the narrative forwarded by liberals in general and those within our community that self-identify as Muslim liberals. And if you know me, you would know that I don't particularly find the modernist narrative appealing nor elegant in their appeals to what I, and I think most Muslims see, as the ideas of an incoherent worldview that has undermined human societies the world over. With these caveats in mind, this episode we dedicate to a discussion with an American Muslim liberal, Dr. Shadi Hamid. I have followed his works for some years, and although we part company on a number of issues, as you will hear, I do feel Shadi is a reluctant liberal, open to criticise not only those inconsistencies he witnesses, but also he attempts to make sense of American foreign policy in light of his values, and I am not sure he is always successful in reaching a satisfactory and coherent answer. I found our discussion fascinating, not least because I wanted to understand how he views American liberalism, the trend towards nativism, exemplified in the near re-election of Donald Trump last year, but also how he reconciles his worldview with his Islamic faith, which I know he thinks a lot about. This interview was conducted earlier this year, just after the last Israeli bombardment of Gaza, so I also asked him about how he navigates the pro-Israeli consensus in America. Shadi has written a number of books on the Muslim world, Indeed, this is where he made his name in American political and academic circles. So we spent time talking about the attitudes of Muslims in the Muslim world towards Islam, as well as the often oversimplistic way U.S. foreign policy treats the Middle East and Islamic parties. 
As always, we would love to hear your views. You can leave a comment on our website, thinkingmuslim.com, and we would appreciate it if you rate us on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about this podcast as well as subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Dr. Shadi Hamid, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, and welcome to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Alaikum salam. Thanks for having me. No, Jazakallah It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Now, I've invited you on really to talk about the state of American uh, liberal democracy and America's position in the world, the state of the liberal world order. And I know that on your Wisdom of Crowds podcast, as well as uh, in uh, the essays that you you write for for various outlets, you do talk about uh, the the parlor state, I suppose, of uh, American liberal democracy. Um, and, And so... Uh, that's really where I want to take at least the initial part of today's discussion. But I also want to uh, talk about your, I mean, I think it's fair to say you've made your name in America really as a commentator on Islam. And uh, you've written a number of books now on uh, Islamic politics in, in the Muslim world. Um, uh, a particular book which I I've, I really enjoyed reading was Islamic Exceptionalism. And I, I found a lot of what you said quite agreeable. Uh, I think you factually present Islam as something quite different, something exceptional to uh, the other uh, religions out there. And, and uh, I, in a sense, I, I mean, maybe we can talk about this, but it, there isn't there is a plea in that book for American policymakers to judge and view Islam differently to how they would view maybe other secular creeds. Now, I know you come from a, uh, a, a liberal position, probably, it's, it's fair to say, but, um, but it's really good to see a, uh, a mainstream commentator talk about Islam in, in terms that uh, probably I would agree with, and I know many of my listeners would agree with. And finally, maybe if we have some time at, at the end, we're talking just after the most recent Gaza episode. It'd be great to talk about American public opinion and Palestine, and whether that's changing in the face of overriding evidence, I suppose, that there is an asymmetric conflict out there. And um, and, and American support for Israel probably is untenable, in, in especially when you know, the Biden administration talks about human rights and, and the need to, uh, to make that at the, the center of uh, American foreign policy. Now, Maybe what connects these three themes together is that you've been quite outspoken and sometimes you, you go against the grain of of public opinion when you uh, comment on issues to do with public discourse. I mean, do you see yourself as a contrarian, Shadi? <laughs> well, I, some people certainly see me as a contrarian. I don't love the label myself because contrarian sometimes has a pejorative connotation that someone is being contrary for the sake of it. Um, So whatever anyone else says, they say the opposite. I mean, sometimes I say the opposite, but I would like to think that I do so because of the things that I believe. It happens to be the case that my ideas and my convictions have um, taken me a little bit away from some of the mainstream discourse in the U S and, but I, 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 there are things that I believe in quite strongly. And if that leads me to have an opinion, which is controversial or contrarian, then I think that, you know, I'm willing to accept that. And I am a critic certainly of um, many of my fellow travelers or or colleagues um, on the left or the liberal left. 
And um, that's not to say that I, I can't be friends with, um, you know, other folks on the left, uh, on the left. It's just to say that there are some growing disagreements in light of events over the past few years. A lot has happened in the U.S. and it scrambled the traditional political alliances. And I, I don't think it's even really quite accurate to speak of a clear left and a clear right. And I'm someone who I think is heterodox. There are things that I, I look at my my friends on on the right, um, and there there are things that I think we should learn from them and try to take in good faith. And there are things from the left, say on massive um, income inequality, that I think um, everyone in the U.S. should take more seriously. And so, you know, my view is, um, it's not great to have a team. We shouldn't have teams. We shouldn't have tribes. We look for the best ideas wherever they come from. You know, and as a Muslim, I'll also say that um, I've I've learned a lot from my Christian, even evangelical friends and 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 colleagues that I who I've engaged with more and more over the past few years. And I think uh, there are great things about Christianity that I think have, uh, if I can say this, have helped me become a better person, and even have inspired me to become even a better Muslim. And I see the level of commitment and conviction, and I don't agree with the creed. Naturally, I don't believe that, you know, um, in, in the Trinity or that Jesus is the son of God, but I can appreciate the ideas that come out of Christian conviction. And that's sort of my approach to ideas in general, I would say. Now, your podcast is called Wisdom of Crowds, and, and I suppose that's a nice way to enter the subject of liberal democracy. In your mind, is there a wisdom in crowds? I mean, I note early classical liberals were very cautious about popular democracy. I mean, consider our celebrated British philosopher, John Stuart Mill, who talked of the tyranny of the majority. Shadi, can crowds have collective wisdom, as many modern liberals would suggest? So the reason that we called our podcast Wisdom of Crowds it's meant to be somewhat ironic because <laughs> I don't necessarily believe in the wisdom of crowds myself. Um, and I think we see signs of the lack of collective wisdom in democratic contests throughout the world, whether it's um, our own election of Donald Trump, um, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Modi in India, Duterte in the Philippines. I mean, if, if there's a universal story of the past five years, it's that the public doesn't necessarily make the right choice. Um, oftentimes it makes the quote unquote wrong choice. That said, I am a very staunch believer in popular democracy because I believe democracy is good irrespective of its outcomes. In other words, if the majority makes bad choices, I very much think they have the right to make the wrong choice and that that choice should be respected. I'm not an instrumentalist. I don't believe that democracy is a means to a better end. I don't think that democracy is good only in so far as it produces good outcomes. So let's say um, there's a democracy and the, and the elected government messes up the economy or doesn't address income inequality. That to me does not undermine the idea of popular choice, because I think there is an intrinsic good to individuals and citizens in a society 
making their own decisions, deciding their own destiny, and exercising exercising moral and political agency that if we can only be fully human, we can only be fully what God meant us to be, if we are fully invested um, in our own lives. And I don't believe that we can be fully invested unless we're unless we have something to say about how we're governed and who governs us. Um, we know that around the world, uh, popular democracies lead into uh, pretty unsavory outcomes. I mean, you, you've cited there Bolsonaro and, and Duterte. Uh, you know, there are countless examples now of very, what you call illiberal democracies that are growing around the world. And, and I, I mean, that you know, America is not immune to this. Um, 74 million Americans voted uh, for Trump this time around. Yeah. And um, that was despite the insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, what I would call, you know, what I would say, you know, are, are pretty abysmal uh, uh, statements by, uh, by Trump throughout his uh, tenure. Very, very poor COVID tolls. Uh, yet, uh, you know, large numbers of your countrymen were willing to vote for uh, someone who had very authoritarian tendencies. I mean, how do you square that with, with this quite optimistic view that the outcome should be accepted no matter what? Well, so I don't know if my take is optimistic. I think I would say that I'm, I'm not a utopic person. I don't believe, I, I'm skeptical about human beings and what they're capable of in this world because, and, and this is where maybe there's been some Christian influence where I've come to appreciate the idea of humans being broken by sin and being in some sense fallen. And there are comparable ideas in Islam as well. And one reason that um, the Sharia is constraining and, and it's meant to be constraining is precisely because there's an understanding of human frailty and human weakness and that the law is meant to play a role in um, reducing the harms um, implicit in that weakness. So uh, I'm not someone who thinks that humans can be perfected or that we can move, that we're constantly progressing and moving to some perfect union. We can try, and I'm, I'm someone who very much advocates for trying. I do believe we can be better, particularly when it comes to Americans and and. And, their foreign, and our foreign policy. I believe that the U.S. has had a tragic history in the Muslim world. We've supported authoritarian regimes for quite a long time. I want us to be better, but I'm also realistic that we're never going to be as good as I would like. And I have to accept that because that is the nature of this world and this life. Um, but on, on the question of democracy's outcomes, well, I don't think that if someone votes for Donald Trump, that makes them a bad person. I don't think I'm, I'm always concerned about investing political choices with moral meaning. I think that someone can be moral on the personal level, even if they decided to vote for Donald Trump. Of course, there are many Trump voters who are immoral and I think had um very at problematic motivations for voting for him, but um, it just depends on who we're talking about. And I think in this regard, I draw some, I draw some inspiration from my time living in the Middle East and, and studying Middle East politics, where 
Um, there are a lot of otherwise good people who supported terrible things. Um, and I, I talk about this um, in, in, in my books and in my articles, which is the, the Rabbah massacre being one, I think, example of this that, um, you know, for, for listeners who might not be familiar, um, a massacre which killed um, a thousand supporters of the Muslim, more than a thousand supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood after the military coup in, in 2013, many of the su- supporters of that, uh, of that massacre, some of them were people that I knew, including members of my family. And so you can have people who are dear to you who decide, who decide to support very bad, even horrific things that doesn't take them outside of the fold necessarily, whether it's the fold of Islam or the fold of, um, of American politics or being American when it comes to the decision to support Donald Trump. So in that sense, people, people have bad ideas and um, that's just going to be a reality that we can't quite avoid. What we hope though, through the democratic process is, is that there can be some kind of correction over time. And I think we had that in the U S Americans decided to vote for Donald Trump in one election. You know, that was, I thought that was bad, but we survived as a, as a democracy and our institutions held. And then we were able to vote for Joe Biden. And I think we're on a better course right now. Um, That doesn't necessarily speak to any inherent wisdom, but it does speak to what I think is the power of democracy, that it allows for change. It allows people to make different decisions every four or five years or whatever it happens to be. And that to me is part of the intrinsic good, that that people can constantly be modifying their own preferences as they engage in political life and as they associate with their fellow citizens. Sometimes that will lead to bad outcomes. Other times it will lead to better outcomes. But I'm also, I think, a little bit skeptical of the idea that we can ever truly arbitrate what is a quote unquote good outcome versus a bad outcome. Because obviously we as Americans no longer agree on what is the common good. So today I have Republican friends who think that Biden is really bad. Um, I thought that Trump was really bad, but we have no supreme authority that can arbitrate who is right. And that's why I think ultimately we have to postpone or suspend judgment. There is no way in this life to, to, let's say, conclude definitively about who is right or wrong in particular political debates or crises. I have my own view, and I think my view is better or more moral but I have no way to prove that definitively. So I think what that requires is a kind of humility. Um, and last thing I'll say is the question of democracy also has a lot of implications for Muslim majority countries because um, Islamist parties tend to do quite well in elections in the Middle East. And I, I'm, I wouldn't want to have a situation where secularists or liberals in the Middle East say something similar to what Americans who oppose Donald Trump said, which is Donald Trump is a threat to democracy. He's illiberal. He doesn't respect basic norms. He doesn't respect minority rights. 
those are some of the same things that liberals and secularists said when the Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamist parties came to power during the Arab Spring. And that can be very dangerous to say essentially that the masses are bad, they are to be feared because they don't know what's good for them and they can't be trusted with the vote. And that's why we have to ask the military or the deep state or whoever else to intervene to prevent the masses from expressing their own popular preferences. We've seen how destructive that can be in the Middle East. So I, I think that we have to be consistent and say, look, um, democracy has to be respected irrespective of its outcomes, essentially. Otherwise, people will always block the outcomes or they'll try to block the outcomes that are not to their liking. But what if the democratic outcomes erode the principles that undergird the state? So, for example, um, over a prolonged period of time, uh, American voters decide to vote for Trump-like figures. And within time, uh, there's enough of a consensus to undermine those constitutional norms. I mean, I, I think it's, it's correct to note that if it wasn't for COVID and uh, uh, the, the negative economic outcomes, I think it's very likely that Donald Trump would have remained president and uh, you would have seen a second term for, for Donald Trump. Look, it's hard to say. I mean, obviously it was a close election. So even with COVID, I mean, Trump could have still won if things had gone a little bit differently in the, in the, in the months leading up to the election. And that was a very frightening night because we thought, I remember that night that we're like, oh my God, are we really going to do this again? 2016 repeat and how we felt. I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of Hillary, but I was definitely supporting her. And that was a tough night in 2016. And we almost thought we'd have another tough night in 2020. Thank God it didn't, it it turned out better as the night went on. But look, if Trump had won fair and square um, through the agreed upon system of the electoral college for all of its faults, I would have had no choice but to respect that. Um, these are my fellow Americans and I can't devalue their vote and I can't, uh, de- devalue their preference. They are not beyond the pale. The only people I really think that are beyond the pale to use that term are, um, let's say outright white supremacist avowed racist. So not just people we think are racist, but people who are open, openly racist. Otherwise, if it was just people we thought were racist, then we'd say that maybe 74 million Americans, i.e. those who voted for Donald Trump, are in effect racist because they voted for a racist president. And you can see how, with that kind of reasoning, we get into dangerous territory of basically saying that we can't live at peace or we can't live in any kind of civil respect with 74 million of our fellow citizens. And ultimately, if we can't live with our fellow citizens, what do we have as Americans? I mean, that's ultimately ultimately what binds us is the act of being or becoming American. But if we extend this to say, again, to use a different example that might be more clarifying, um, I the rhetoric after the Brotherhood won in Egypt was, again, people said... Again, you know, primarily secularists, nationalists, liberals, but basically people who didn't like Islamists. The one thing that they agreed on is they said if the Muslim Brotherhood keeps on winning, it will change the nature of the Egyptian state. We will never be the same. We will go backward. 
They will um, take over the institutions of the state. They will start imposing various aspects of Sharia. Now, I mean, I, I'm skeptical of how much Sharia would have been implemented um, in the case of the Brotherhood in Egypt. But I think it's a, it's a similar question. How do we feel about bad outcomes? And it's just a question of, so presumably some of, you know, many of your listeners will be sympathetic to the idea that Sharia should play some role in public life. They might disagree in what that looks like and um, what is the nature of the Sharia. And obviously, if you talk to 10 Muslims and ask them what the Sharia means to them, you'll get 10 different answers or maybe, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair to say for better or worse. Um, so, uh, so the only, so what I would say is that the way we protect against excess, whether it's Islamist excess or populist excess in Europe, and obviously in, in your own home country, people thought Brexit was an example of the, of whatever the opposite of wisdom is, I'm forgetting the word, but the collective opposite of wisdom, people voted for Brexit. And, and that felt, I think, to many of, you know, my, my Brit friends, like an existential threat. And if that's what democracy produces, then is democracy worth it? But it's interesting that in retrospect, we might say today that Brexit brought its own benefits in disengaging the UK from a European project that I would argue has been um, rather um, that has failed to various degrees when it comes to the vaccine rollout and dealing with uh, COVID more more broadly. So there's also a sense that we never quite know how certain decisions will play out play out over time. But ultimately, you have to have constraints on the popular will. So this gets, I think, to your fundamental concern about the tyranny of the majority. Each society has to decide what the limits are, and that's generally done through a constitution. So I believe that if there are future democratic openings in Muslim-majority countries, that there has to be a more consensual approach to drafting a new constitution. And that ideally would put limits on what an Islamist party could do. So you'd, you'd have guarantees on minority rights. You'd have some clauses about um, equality between citizens, um, freedom of expression and certain civil liberties. Um, obviously, constitutions can be overridden, you know, usually if you have a supermajority. So in the U.S., um, you know, you can have uh, two thirds of both houses of Congress and 75% of the states to kind of institute amendments, so on and so forth. So there's never any foolproof mechanism. And that's why ultimately democracy is a risk. And there's no way to reduce that risk to zero. So we try to introduce protections, we try to introduce um, constitutional limits on what majorities can do. But still, if enough people want to make a change, they can do it. Now, there are certain things that would that would make a democracy no longer a democracy. And then obviously, as someone who is a small d Democrat, I would be against that. So for example, let's say that a law was some kind of constitutional amendment was passed that stripped Christians from the right to vote in certain elections in Egypt. Obviously, I would have, we would have to be against that and we should be against that. Um, not, and that's even putting it quite mildly because that would no longer be a democracy because if, if, if citizens 
no longer have a right to vote, then it's not even a, an illiberal democracy. So there's also for something to be a flawed illiberal democracy, we're criticizing it. We have issues with how illiberal this democracy has become. The, li the limit there, we have to make sure it doesn't go one step further and become a non-democracy altogether. So people still have to have the right to vote. Um, citizens have to have the right to recourse. So in other words, they should be able to speak out in the, in the local and national media. They have to be able to organize political parties. Um, they have to be able to communicate their ideas to the electorate. If any of those things are taken away, then the basic building blocks of democracy are no longer there. So to me, that is the absolute limit. Um, so that goes, uh, um, and so in that sense, you can't, you can't do whatever you want in a democracy because it would no longer be a democracy um, if, you actually if you actually took away the right of citizens to express their political preferences. Because to me, that is the fundamental good of democracy, as I mentioned earlier, that citizens have to have a say in their own lives and in who governs them. So in a sense, you do care about outcomes. I suppose you're, uh, you would like uh, the, the, the basic structure of the state, the constitutional structure of the state, in, in the case of America, the liberal constitution, to be protected regardless of um, political parties that come to power uh, at any one point in, in, in time. So you, you do care about outcomes, uh, but, but maybe those outcomes are a little bit more general than, say, others. The limit is less on liberal terms and more on, on democratic terms. So in other words, um, it has more to do with the procedural aspects. But then what... what and I'm less... Yeah. What, what about, yeah. say, uh, Hungary under Viktor Orban or Poland today or Russia or Belarus? I mean, these are ostensibly at least, you know, uh, democracies. They have elections every four or five years. Uh, yet we're seeing uh, a, a gradual erosion of, uh, of wider, you know, wider principles of, you know, of, of free speech and, and free press. I mean, how would you uh, square that with, with you know, yeah. your understanding? Yeah. Well, great question. So, I mean, the fundamental the fundamental issue for me is: Do opposition parties have a legitimate chance of winning? Are the elections meaningful? Russia is not a democracy because elections are not meaningful. No one can win besides Putin. Hungary is a case that is sort of on the edge, and I think there's an interesting debate about whether it's possible for the opposition to actually win at this point because of um, increasing government control of the media restrictions on on organizing, so on and so forth. Those are th the things that we have to look most closely at. And that's where I personally draw the line. So my line is a little bit more minimalist than other people who raise a kind of higher liberal bar and are mo more focused on quote unquote liberal values. What I'm primarily concerned about is um, whether people are able to reverse their decisions and to choose differently in subsequent elections. If it gets to the point where the opposition has no realistic shot, then it's no longer a true democracy. So, uh, so Turkey is another, I think, on the edge case. And again, like I'm not here to sort of arbitrate the right answer because I think there are compelling arguments on both sides. But um, I think it is becoming more difficult for 
um, what is now the secular opposition um, against the current, you know, Islamist leaning uh, ruling party, it is becoming harder and harder for them to win. Um, so that that to me is is unacceptable because that that deprives citizens of of, of choice between competing parties. Um, so in that sense, I'm very much a dem- what I call a democratic minimalist. So I'm more concerned about maintaining the integrity of the procedural system and the process. And then whatever the process then produces, I think we should have a hands-off approach to, this, to that. So let's say in a given country, a socialist party wins or a communist party or a Salafi party or a brotherhood party or a liberal party or a secular party. I'm less concerned about that as long as the procedural integrity is protected. I wonder whether that's enough to safeguard uh, the type of country and system you would like to live in. Um, uh, I didn't say I would like know. to live in it because, okay, this ah. is good. It's good that you you mentioned this because I, so um, I am I am still a, a small, I am a liberal, a classical liberal in a sense. I'm a, uh, the way that I also characterize myself in the American context is, I'm a liberal who's critical of liberalism. I think there are major weaknesses to modern liberalism. Um, and that's why I share, I, I share some critiques with folks on the right, on the sort of Catholic or Christian right, who have become very critical of modern American liberalism, because we can see the weaknesses. We can see what happens when you have the perception of unlimited choice, when there are no real duties or obligations or constraints. And I think uh, we just actually were talking to Sohrab Ahmari, the, the Catholic uh, writer, um, the other day on, on Wisdom of Crowds, my, our podcast. And um, a, big part of, a big part of his argument is that to have true freedom, there, it can't be unlimited. There have, there have to be built-in constraints and that's a view that I think many Muslims will sympathize with in terms of a deeper, more holistic conception of freedom, one that is not just being subject to whatever our whims and desires are at any given moment, but to have a deeper account of what it means to be um, a free human being and, and one who is more sort of in line with, um, with, with God and with um, a deeper good, let's say. Right. Um, so, and yeah, so I like America because, so I have those critiques of liberalism, but I still, I still, I don't want us to be very different than what we currently are. So when people talk about like, whether it's, you know, uh, reimagining a Christian order in the U S you know, I'm sympathetic to Christianity playing, a larger role in American public life because I think religion is important and it shouldn't be suppressed in the public sphere. But at the same time, I think we got a pretty, uh, pretty good thing going um, here in the U S and part of that is because um, I grew up, I grew up, I'm bo- born raised uh, in the U S my parents are from Egypt, but I, I have felt freedom and I've been able to make my own choices. And sometimes that leads to me making my own bad choices, but I do appreciate the freedom and I want to, and I, and I want, I don't like the idea of living in a society where let's say an Islamist party would be in power. I would have my own personal concerns about that, but I have to, I have to, 
I have to put aside my own personal preferences. And that's the true test of being a small D Democrat. You have to be willing to accept outcomes that seem to you to be personally threatening. I mean, that's how I felt about Donald Trump. The night I, I, I wrote after that election in 2016, I cried. Uh, I was talking to my brother that night and, and we, we cried on the phone together because we were worried about our parents and um, what this would mean for them living, living in the U.S. My mom wears the headscarf. And we were worried about the safety of, of individual Muslims like my mom, the broader Muslim community. But ultimately, that is something we have to be able to withstand as part of um, the, the frightening. I mean, life is, life is difficult. Life can be frightening. And so can democracy, right? So, um, but this is just to say that um, I have my own personal preferences, but as an analyst and as a scholar, I then have an idea of how, what we should be promoting abroad and what, I mean, what I want personally and the fact that I prefer certain liberal, liberal norms here in the US, it's not clear to me why Egyptians or Jordanians or Tunisians should be subject to my own ideological premises because I don't think that I would have become a liberal if it wasn't for the fact that I was born and raised in a liberal society. We are products of our own context. And that's why I'm also skeptical about having any um, truly objective account of the good. Again, truly objective in the sense that a sense of the common good that everyone can agree on, because each individual's conception of the common good is contingent on their own surrounding environment. If I had grown up um, Egypt, I don't think I would have been a liberal. If I grew up in Pakistan, I probably would have been sympathetic to blasphemy laws because the majority of Pakistanis, because of their own particular context, support blasphemy laws. I don't because blasphemy is anathema to the American mindset, one that is shaped by liberal ideas and norms. Shadi, how do you reconcile your belief in liberalism and your faith in Islam um, I just want you to talk me through uh, how you think about these uh, two subjects, liberalism as a political creed, I suppose, and Islam as your religious creed. Um, is there a tension between the demands uh, Islam sets for you and the demands of, uh, of uh, living in a liberal society or believing in, in liberal principles? I mean, I, I would... I would say there are tensions, but I would like you to, 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 to talk me through how you think about this subject. Okay, it's a tough one. Um, it's, it's a little bit convoluted, and I, I, hope, I hope you'll, um, you'll bear with me as I... <laughs> Please, yes. Okay, so my own personal views on Islam are not necessarily in the mainstream. So... It's a little bit confusing because I do have certain progressive quote. Unquote, I should put that in scare quotes because I know it's a it's a sometimes a, a controversial and contested term. If you had to put me individually on the on the Muslim spectrum, I'm more on the progressive side of things, um, which is to say that um, I do personally. So, for example, I, I sympathize more with um, Mu'tazilite understandings of Islam than, than Ashari understandings 
of and not to get too much into the details of that, but briefly, um, I so Matazalites generally would say that um, because God is just, God is not capable of committing injustice, or sorry, or, or well, that's one way of putting it, but God cannot do unjust things because of his nature is the most just. So in that sense, God is in some sense, again, these are problematic terms that are contested in Islamic history, but in some sense, God is quote unquote bound by an objective conception of justice. So in other words, um, God, um, let's say as an example, um, why I, uh, you know, whether it's, things that have been controversial in Islamic history, um, slavery, um, uh, certain, um, certain, I think, anti, let's say, depriving women of, of, of certain rights in, in the classical era um, in Islamic history. And we now look back and we say, well, are we okay? Are we okay with some of these things or not? This is problematic in part because it relies on a certain on a moving target of what justice is. We don't agree on what is just, right? Anyway, the Asharis would would say that whatever God wills is therefore just. So if God, let's say, you know, if God asked one of his creation to um to hurt or even to use an extreme example, um to, to kill to kill one son. Theor- again, this is totally hypothetical and theoretical because God would never, I would never, I think, <laughs> do that. But then if you want to take it to an extreme, you would say that if God asked his creation to do something and however bad or unjust or, or we would have to, we would have to follow it. And we would then adapt our conception of justice and say that this is now just because God commanded it to be so. So there is no independent conception of justice um, so on and so forth. Anyway, <laughs> this is all to say. Uh, but we have an example of that, of course, uh, Abraham, Ibrahim al-Islam. Yes, that's what I was sort of... What, yeah. what was asked to do that, right? And um, uh, I know that uh, some modern liberal uh, scholars in America have, have, uh, have questioned the merits uh, of that decision and, and whether God would have asked his prophets. Yet we know that... Uh, there is near consensus. Even the Mu'tazilites would would agree that uh, this happened, and this is this needs to be believed in. Um, I mean, I'm not asking you to to give me your your take. Oh on yes, that. I be- I believe yeah. in it. I would just say that I, I um, God didn't ask. Um, God didn't end up asking um, Abraham to go through with it. So I think it would have been a little bit more complicated if it actually. Yeah, but I'm not too sure whether that's a, a strong argument. Um, surely uh, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, and the parable, the, the moral of the story was that uh, Abraham was willing to do so, and his son was willing to do so willingly, and that's a, a story of sacrifice and obedience to a creator. I can't be anything other than what I am as an individual, a product of my own environment. And I, I do believe being American does affect how you view Islam. We do tend to be more, quote unquote, progressive, liberal. We do tend to look at the Makassid more. We do tend to emphasize da'illa or the, um, the underlying cause of a hukm or a ruling in Islam. 
these are um, that's something that I find compelling from a rational perspective. Um, I don't know if I want to ask other Muslims in other parts of the world to have this more progressive makasidi or, or so let's say, uh, yeah, this, this makasid approach to Islam, because I'm not 100% sure it's correct. So I think that what, what I believe is good, f- is, is, is good, at least for me and for my own community, my own environment, I could be wrong. And again, I mean, ultimately, I'm accountable to God. And, you know, that's, that's an individual thing. I don't think others have to be particularly concerned about, but um, I don't want to, again, I don't want to, I don't want to take my quote unquote progressive liberal influenced interpretations and say that um, some ordinary Egyptian in the middle of Cairo has to agree with me because it's kind of complicated. I've tried to explain, if you try to explain to someone the idea of maqasid and the idea of taking da'illah, bahukm, and so on and so forth, and how that affects our view on, inher- let's say, um, female inheritance, all of this, they're going to say, look, or, or the, or the, um, or the hudud, um, let's say cutting off the hands of thieves to take a controversial example. I mean, that's in the Quran. So if it is in the text, I think it's not really fair to me, for me to go to someone and say, hey, Muslim person, this is in the text of the Quran, but I'm asking you to come up with a complex hermeneutical interpretation. That's not for an ordinary Muslim to do. If people want to get into that, they can. Anyway, that's that's a that's a yeah. somewhat. This is just, hopefully that helps a little bit. No, it does. I, mean, I wonder how much you're. I mean, you, you've effectively said it. You're, you're projecting your uh, your liberalism upon the faith. And the faith has to adhere to your liberal principles. And I, I wonder, I mean, you know, which is fair enough, that's your position. But I wonder whether uh, that uh, goes against, certainly goes against the grain of Islamic history and scholarship. But I wonder how much that goes against um, uh, Islam as a, as a faith that believes in submission, that believes that uh, God has uh, ordained a, a course, a, a sharia for, for human beings to, to follow uh, so that they can reach ultimate salvation. At least that's how, I mean, as, as you would you know, that's how most Muslims, I suspect, would, uh, would still see Islam. You, you had a, a fascinating interview a few weeks back with Mustafa Akio. And, and, and you know, Mustafa Akio was, had a position which isn't really too dissimilar to yours. I know it's, it's probably, he takes it one step further. But, but um, I, having listened to uh, that interview, I wonder how much, in effect, he, he's, he's and, and he, he very openly admits it, that, you know, it, Islam needs to go through a liberalizing process in order for Islam to be accommodated. Yeah, well, look, I mean, in that, in that podcast episode, I was basically arguing against, against myself, <laughs> like, in, in a sense... Um, Mustafa and me on a personal level are quite similar. We're also pretty good friends. Where we disagree is on the public implications of our personal preferences. I, again, I, I'm, not, I'm not a theologian. I am not a scholar of Islamic law. Uh, I'm not, I mean, that's not my training. Um, and uh, I'm not, you know... As someone who is not an imam or a cleric or a religious scholar, it is not my job to tell Muslims how to live their lives. 
I can analyze and assess and offer my own personal, I can share, this is how I think about things. Um, people can take it or leave it, but I'm not going to pretend that I, what I'm saying is the right interpretation of Islam. And I'm very careful. There are creedal requirements in Islam, and I'm not going to pretend that someone is going to remain, is going to be Muslim if they don't believe in the creed. Just be, just like I don't, I'm not going to pretend that someone is a Christian if they say that Jesus is just an ordinary dude. There are some nominal Christians who say that, but the whole point of Christianity is to believe in Christ. The whole point of Islam is to believe in the divinity of the Quran. If you, if someone believes that the Quran was written by Muhammad, then obviously they're not. So in that sense, I take the foundations of Islam very seriously because I believe that religions aren't interchangeable. And, you know, I wrote a book called Islamic Exceptionalism. And one of the reasons that I think Islam is exceptional is because it has a distinctive creed. And the whole point of having different religions is defeated if you just basically say that anyone can self-identify as any religion, irrespective of whether or not they fulfill the creedal requirements, right? So um, in that sense, there I don't know if I'd call that orthodoxy. I think it's just a very basic thing that we always accepted until quite recently, where now people are saying, well, you can be a secular Muslim or a cultural Muslim. I guess you can, but we should separate between being a Muslim from the standpoint of identity, that it's a cultural or ethnic affectation versus being theologically Muslim. And I think there's real importance to talking about a theological conviction, basically. Um, so, you know, in that sense, I also like that Islam is uncompromising. I, I, that's what makes Islam distinctive. Or I should say, that's what other people like about Islam. And I like the fact that they like that. Because that gives them meaning, that gives them structure. And I, and I see the weaknesses of liberalism. And I don't necessarily know if I want other people to struggle with my own, it's difficult to have a lot of choices. I've also talked about the paradox of choice and how that contributes to unhappiness in modern liberal societies. Once you have so much choice, you can never undo it. It changes the way you approach your own life. So you can try to become more orthodox, but it becomes more challenging. So I would prefer, you know, I think it, in some ways it might be better to not, to not experiment too much with that because we know what it can lead to. It can lead to a certain kind of intellectual and even philosophical um, chaos, which is maybe more than people can handle. So um, if we want Islam, if, the, if Islam maintains this, um, uh, it, it maintains this like quote unquote uncompromising aspect then I also don't want to deprive people of what is meaningful to them as Muslims. Um, and this is where I disagree and diverge with Mustafa. Mustafa has, Mustafa Akil has a vision of what Islam can become, but I wonder if that, that Islam might be more conducive to freedom and it might lead to better economic outcomes in terms of actual, uh, you know, if we assume that liberal values can kind of contribute to um, an entrepreneurial or free market approach that is more vibrant, so on and so forth. It can lead to better politics. It can lead to more respect for human rights. 
And that's what Mustafa is prioritizing. And I respect that. But it may also come at the cost of people's individual relationship with God. That's intangible. And I think there's a real tension here. Because I think that what Mustafa is offering can actually be good in some ways, but in a very temporal and even secular sense. And we have to ask ourselves as Muslims, maybe there's a middle ground that is somewhat in between, but it's not my job, but it's not something I want to tell Muslims to do. They have to come to their own conclusions. And that's part of why I I fall back on the democratic idea. Because democracy is, if we take just the procedural aspect of it, it's about Muslims making their own choices about how they want to live as Muslims and not just as citizens. And oftentimes those two are intertwined. Those are two important identities for for most Muslims in the Middle East and beyond. They are Egyptian. They are also Muslim. They are Tunisian. They are also Muslim. And they have to decide what that means to them. And democracy is a way to unleash those possibilities and for them to have their own debates about what role Islam should play. Um, you mentioned there your book, Islamic Exceptionalism. And, and it seems to me you were making a, a, a deeper point in that book about the founding moment of Islam. And you argue that uh, Islam is different to other mon- monotheistic faiths. Uh, what do you mean by that? And, and why why make that point? Yeah, so, you know, when I talked about Islamic exceptionalism in the book, I should also clarify, for me, exceptionalism is not about being better or worse. It's about being qualitatively different. And I think that the idea of difference is important because ultimately there are different religions for people to choose between. And I think it makes sense for religions to maintain distinctiveness in different ways. It just happens to be the case that Islam is different in a particular way, specifically in its resistance to secularization, in its outsized role in politics and public life. And that is actually something that I'm comfortable with. As I mentioned earlier, I'm also fine with Christianity playing um you know, a prominent role in public life. It just depends on what that actually looks like in practice. And then it's up to Muslims to debate what what all of this means in politics. What does it mean to want Sharia? So on and so forth. Um, and, um, but also I'm not going to, I'm not going to make Islam into something it isn't. I mean, the founding moment is crucial. You know, as you mentioned, that is a key concept in, 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 in that book, um, which is that you can't, you can't sort of take Prophet Muhammad's role as a politician and a state builder and a head of a proto-state in Medina and pretend that, that that has no bearing on what Islam is. That just wouldn't make sense because obviously we know that many of the Quran's verses were revealed to Prophet Muhammad in Medina. So clearly this is part of what Islam was and what it became. And the idea that we can separate, let's say the the Meccan verses from the Medina verses, I'm fine with historicizing certain verses. In other words, to say, God revealed this at a particular moment, at a particular place, and he was speaking to a particular audience. Let's understand that concept, that 
that context. And that's not, I mean, sometimes that can be controversial, but generally most scholars do consider Esbeb and Nizul or the, the reasons behind revelation. So there are reasons that God revealed certain things to Prophet Muhammad and the, and the early Muslims at particular times. Um, that said, um, Islam, the idea that Islam can be secularized, it goes against the foundations of the faith. And that's where I push back because I'm, I don't like it when individual human beings try to change things that are not within their purview. And that's why, again, I'm trying to be very careful about what I say um, on some of these things, because um, I think it's better for people to be wrong and to be sinners than to change, than to um, make Islam something other than what it was intended to be. Because then you aren't, as you mentioned, submit, then you're getting into this problematic gray zone of, are you kind of contending with God and are you actually maintaining some level of humility and, and um, sense of your own fallibility as a human being? So, um, and it's also not realistic to secularize Islam again, because that's what, that's what people, that's what a lot of people find compelling about it, that it does speak to modern questions. I mean, there are political vacuums, ideological vacuums throughout the world where people are looking for alternatives and to tell them that they can't consider the role of their own religion in their political conception, it, it's very limiting. And, um, and it's unclear to me why a majority of Muslims would move in that direction. I mean, we've seen that they aren't moving in that direction, despite, I think, various efforts at secularization over the 20th century. I mean, take some of the examples like Turkey and Tunisia, where there was not just cultural secularization, there was forced secularization. So even if you try to suppress people into being secular, what we find is that oftentimes over decades, Muslims may realize later on that they want to return to a more Islamic conception of politics. I bring up Turkey and Tunisia because those are two of the only countries um, in the Arab world where Islamist parties have been in power for a significant period of time. And it's not an accident or um, it's not an accident. Those are two of the most secularized countries in the Arab world. So even in secular contexts, you still have this sense that Islam should matter um, in public life. So if you can't do it with coercion, and that's also another problem, that if you insist on secularization, it leads you to a coercive conclusion. Because what it leads you to is to say that um, ordinary Muslims are too pious, they're too religious, they want too much Islam in public life, and there have to be secularized elites that force them in a different direction. And basically, they can only do that through authoritarian rule. And that's why I would argue um, liberalism in the Middle East, unfortunately, has often been a handmaiden to authoritarianism. They go together in the Middle East, unfortunately. They don't necessarily in, in, the West, in Western democracies. It's actually closer to the opposite that democracy and liberalism, at least recently, have ten not recently, not in the last five years, but you know, for the last two centuries, there was a sense that liberalism and democracy were were sort of going in the same direction. They were supporting each other, so on and so forth. In the Middle East, liberalism has does not necessarily support democracy because most most Muslims in Arab countries are not liberals. 
let's turn to your book, uh, Temptations of Power. And you make a point that, um, I, I think it's a very weighty point, but you suggest that any future democratic Muslim world would have to incorporate at the very least Islamic parties, if not an Islamic, uh, if not a, an Islamic government possibly. Um, I mean, how sure you, are you about the strength of Muslim public opinion towards Islam in the Arab and wider Muslim world? Okay, well, there's two different ideas here. One is the Islamist parties and the other, which is related but different, which is Islamism. You can have Islamism without necessarily having Islamist parties. So one thing that I've, I've also discussed, I think in both books actually, is... Um, Malaysia and Indonesia, which are really interesting cases because Islamists are almost never in power. They don't actually do that well in elections, but you still have the implementation of Sharia ordinances in both countries to, to quite an extent in certain localities and regions. But what's kind of interesting and, and somewhat, um, somewhat odd is that it's often secular parties that have implemented Sharia ordinances. Why? Because Political calculations in conservative areas of both countries, the median voter wants more Islam in public life. They call for that publicly. So if you're a secular party and if you want to win in one of those more conservative regions of Indonesia or Malaysia, you have to appeal to that median voter. That's part of what democracy does. It forces parties to make concessions to public opinion. So I'm not I'm not 100 percent. Uh, I, I'm not 100% sure Islamist parties will always do well. In fact, we know that they, they, they won't always do well because part of what democracy is about is the ebbs and flows of popular opinion. Um, but I do think that what is stable in many of these countries is a general desire to have Islam playing a prominent role in public life. But you could still vote for a liberal party, even if you believe that. I mean, you could say, well, hey, it's cool that Islam plays a prominent role in public life, but your priorities are a little bit different. Maybe you're concerned about economic policy and you think that one of the secular parties has a better economic program, or you're a farmer and you're concerned about agricultural policy. And it happens to be a, the case that a socialist party is going to um, address your needs more. People have different motivations for voting. Sometimes it's social pressure. So um, if, if your friends are voting for a liberal party, you might vote for a liberal party, even if you want Islam to play a larger role. Um, so I think that you're always going to have different configurations of electoral results. But I, I think that even if, people, even if public opinion changes, Islamist parties have a built-in advantage in much of the Arab world specifically, is that they're well organized. They know how to get out the vote. Um, they have a presence national nationally. So in that sense, um, they're not just strong in certain major cities. They have more, they have a broader presence, which helps them have um, better electoral results. Um, so when you're very disciplined and when you have an ideology, it allows you to also distinguish yourself from other parties. So people know what the Islamist party wants because they're like, oh, well, the Islamist party wants more Islam. The problem with secular parties is that they're more fractious. There's a bunch of them. They don't have clear ideologies and they can't build strong coalitions. So they end up undermining each other 
in electoral districts because they can't form um, they can't form a kind of let's say a unity list or something like that where the brotherhood tends to be the brotherhood and you don't have that same level of of um, of fracturing. So those are just kind of just and it also depends on what the electoral system is as well. Um, so Islamist parties are just better at elections for some of these different reasons. So even if they don't always win, they'll probably do pretty well, at least for the foreseeable future. So they have to be contended with. They have to be part of the political process. You can't have democracy in the Arab world without Islamists playing that important role. Because if you if you say that the largest opposition party um, has to should be banned or um, shouldn't play a role in government then that's undermining the basic premise of democracy, which is responsiveness to the electorate, which is being reflective of the popular will. So democracies have to reflect where their citizens are. Um, and that's why, I mean, the argument that I make is a very stark one when I talk to you know American audiences or American policymakers, that if you say that you believe in democracy in the Middle East, then you have no choice but to support the right of Islamist parties to participate and even potentially to win. You can't have it both ways. You can't say that you believe in democracy, but you're against Islamists participating. That's a completely incongruous position that is just untenable from an intellectual standpoint. But of course, uh, the Egyptian story uh, shows something different. Um, we know that Morsi uh, became the president um, through democratic means. And within a year, he was removed by what you call the deep state uh, in Egypt. And, and I would say that the Americans favored uh, the option of removing him and have, have had no problem with uh, the very repressive Sisi regime that came in its aftermath. I mean, you're exactly right. And that's why I would say quite simply that the Obama administration did not believe in democracy in the Middle East. Whatever their rhetoric claimed, I don't believe that Obama um, I think that Obama was quite comfortable with the perpetuation of autocratic rule, as have most, I think, American presidents. The one exception, oddly enough, I would say is George W. Bush, who I think on a personal level was actually quite committed to the democratic idea. He did struggle a little bit with Islam. Just a little? A little or more than a little. I mean, here's the problem. And this is why, I mean, I think we have to, as Americans, resolve what I call our Islamist dilemma. We have to come to terms with Islamists potentially winning. There's, we ha th this has been an obstacle for more than 30 years now. And I think the first key moment was the Algerian, the Algerian coup of 1992, the first major instance where an Arab Islamist party was on the verge of victory. And then the, Alger the secular Algerian, Algerian military stepped in and ended that democratic experiment, Algeria has never recovered. And we as Americans and Westerners have never recovered. Ever since then, it's been the same old story. We want democracy in theory, but we're afraid of democracy's outcomes in practice. We got to close the gap. We got to figure that out. Otherwise, we should stop pretending. We shouldn't say that we believe in democracy if we're not willing to address the Islamist dilemma. As for other external actors and whether they would be willing to live with even weak Islamist parties, I don't think the U.S. has to worry about that. I mean, ultimately, the, that, the U.S. is a superpower. And 
um, obviously Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Israel don't want the Muslim Brotherhood to come to power anywhere in the region. But ultimately, if the U.S. if the U.S. wants to seriously promote democracy, it can override the concerns of its allies who are much weaker. I mean, Saudi Arabia needs us much more than we need them. Let's act like it. Let's not defer to them on some of these key questions. Now, you might say, well, why should the U.S. support democracy in the Middle East if it will lead to Islamist parties coming to power? And to that, I would say that there's probably a short-term cost. I'm not going to pretend that um, Islamists will be great for the U.S. in the short term, but I think it's better for the U.S. in the long term because authoritarian regimes are inherently unstable. They don't last forever. It's a matter of time. I think the Egyptian regime seems under Sisi, seems pretty, quote unquote, stable now. Will it be stable in 10 years? The lesson of the Arab Spring to me was that however stable some of these regimes seem, it can change very quickly because they don't have the consent of the governed. They don't have legitimacy in this fundamental sense. What is democracy but a way to confer legitimacy? It's the only way to um, have a regular rotation of power. The biggest problem that dictatorships have is they have no clear way to transfer power to other people. So that's always why there's an instability moment when a dictator dies or uh, when a dictator becomes weak. It's because you don't know how you're going to pass on power or, or institutionalize the passing on of power. And that, that's why we're always nervous about our authoritarian allies. We never know how long they're going to last or whether they're going to be able to withstand internal pressures. So there's a key question here. Do we always want to be worried about these weak, internally divided allies that are suppressing their own people that are inherently illegitimate? That's not a good place for the U.S. to be. But yet that, that seems to be the consensus now in, in policy circles in, in America. I mean, both the Trump and, and probably the Biden administration are uh, content with these autocracies. Look, I, I think you're exactly right. That is kind of where the consensus is. Not completely, but I would say that's definitely more the consensus than my own position. But I mean, you you know how I feel about the conventional wisdom on any number of issues. I oppose it. I think it's, I think it's wrong. And um, I'm in the minority. My side lost the debate during and after the Arab Spring. There's complex reasons for why we lost that debate. Um, I'm not, I, I so I, I don't want to call it a cause because it's not like some ideological, maybe one could argue it's somewhat ideological, my view on democracy. It's also what I think is good for America and good for American interests, in part because I think it is in America's interest to be moral. In the longer term, the source of our strength and power as a nation is inextricably tied to the sense that we are better morally than the alternatives, because people are going to look and say, here's the U.S., here's China, here's the U.S., here's Russia. Um, If we can't draw energy from our moral convictions as a country that is based on a founding set of ideals, then we're not going to be able to compete effectively on the international sphere, because China will eventually overtake us on a lot of metrics, tangible metrics. The one thing that China cannot overtake us on is on soft power and values and 
I, I don't know, maybe, and moral leadership. And I, that's why I think we should be better when it comes to moral leadership. I think it's short-sighted that the Biden administration is indulging these autocrats and isn't doing more to emphasize uh, human rights and democracy. And I think we're going to pay the price for it eventually. And I think the empirical record is clear. Let's look at the last five, six decades where we've been consistently supporting autocratic regimes in the Middle East. Has it led to a better Middle East, a more peaceful Middle East, a more stable Middle East? There are still forced concurrent civil wars that are going on now. Um, if anyone thinks that the Middle East is an, is some kind of region of stability because we've been supporting authoritarians, that's absurd. So we know we know this doesn't work. So it's up to us now to assess that, and it's not just the U.S. You know, you know, Britain, France, Germany, the entire EU. This is a problem in every Western democracy where um, these Western democracies do not live up to their own values. And um, some of them are worse than the US, U.S. I don't want to name names, but like France is one of them. <laughs> so I just, yeah. But um, so look, I think that it's up to all of us. And, it, you know, I think Muslims have a role to play um, in West, like as citizens of these Western democracies, we have more insight into the countries of our parents. And we've seen how dictatorship has been disastrous for these countries. And it's created more extremism, not less. It's created more militant movements that resort to violence, not less. So um, I, might, I think part of what I want to do in my work is to make the case as persuasively as I can and to be that relatively lone voice in the wilderness here in D.C. and say, listen, don't forget that democracy matters. Don't forget that Islamist parties will come back because they always do. They always do. Um, and we it's better for us to prepare for that ahead of time instead of being caught off guard the way we were when the Arab Spring started. No one saw that coming and U.S. policy was not ready for it. And that's part of the reason I think we made a lot of mistakes because um, the Obama administration wasn't prepared for, for what came, in part because they didn't see it coming. Let me ask you a question about Gaza, Palestine, and, and the Israel conflict uh, of the past few weeks. I mean, how do you read public opinion in America? Most Muslims have known for a long time that there's almost a foreign policy, a bipartisan consensus in America towards an, an unwavering commitment uh, to Israel. Uh, but this permeates all of society until it, it I, I suspect it became impossible to question Israel's activity without heavy personal consequences, you know, in, in academia and beyond. Is that consensus changing? Is there a change to the narrative in the past uh, couple of weeks? I think it's been remarkable. I mean, what I saw, I mean, obviously, in a very depressing context, what happened to Gaza, but, but, um, the positive takeaway is that there was more criticism in the mainstream of U.S. debate. And I remember 2014, the previous um, war in Gaza, it wasn't like it wasn't like this. There was criticism, but it was still muted. It wasn't the outpouring that I saw on Twitter and social media and also in the New York Times op-ed pages. You know, whether it's, you know, Nick Kristoff or Michelle Goldberg or various, you know, these are 
people who have an audience of millions and they're, they're even, you know, they're maybe not using the word apartheid. I, I personally don't like, I don't use the word apartheid, not to, not to get into that. I don't think we need to, to use that to make our argument, but even the fact that mainstream commentators are bringing up that word and debating it tells you something about where the conversation is. And um, personally, I decided, I made a decision when, when the, the Gaza crisis was getting worse. I'm like, look, I feel I'm passionate about this. I, this is outrageous. And I have a public platform and I feel like I need to say something about this. I need to write about it. And I didn't feel at any moment that there was any real um, repu, you know, I mean, obviously you don't want to go too far and there's certain things you want to avoid saying, and you want to make sure people understand what you're saying and phrasing things correctly. But was I particularly worried about like reputational cost or being canceled? No, I felt this time around, I was fairly free to say what, what I, what I felt to be true. And in a way that it hadn't been the case in, in prior, um, iterations of the conflict. And part of that is because younger Americans, are our, our, our understanding that um, Israel, Israel is, I mean, at, at some fundamental level, if people want to have a moral politics, if they want their values to influence how they view foreign conflicts, it's impossible to look in, at Israel and not have criticisms. And I think that younger Americans are saying that they want to be progressive on domestic policy, and they can't they can't be progressives except for Palestine. They have to extend their progressive. And here I'm talking about progressive just in the American sense of being, you know, you know, more, more um, supportive of social justice, racial justice, um, economic equality. I'm not talking about the religious aspect. So you have more Americans who are passionate and they want to extend those commitments to Israel, Palestine, and those people are becoming more influential in one of the two major parties in the U.S. And we have several now prominent um, Congress people, whatever else one thinks about them, they are influential, AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and they're vocal. And that gives an opening to other people to also be vocal, because if Congress people can say it, then why shouldn't um, someone on Twitter say it. So I think it's about the Overton window shifting on some of these questions. Um, and that's a good sign. Now, like, what does that actually mean in practice? Well, so far, the Biden administration has been pretty bad. I was not a fan of how they responded to the Gaza crisis. They were um, um, pretty, I would say, unquestioningly supportive of Israel. And Biden has a long history of unwavering support for Israel. I'm fine with Israel being an ally. What I'm not fine with is indulging the worst instincts of the Israeli government. You know, what, what does an alliance mean? What does it mean to work with another government? You know, we shouldn't have to give up our values just because someone is an ally. The same thing goes for Saudi Arabia, Egypt. I'm not going to pretend that we're going to cut contacts and stop doing business with any of these countries. We live in the real world. America isn't an NGO. America is a country that has interests and there's a tension there between values and interests. You know, you can't avoid that. But I do think that we should hold our allies to account, especially if we have leverage with them. We obviously are 
Israel's major military patron and we give them billions of dollars of military assistance, we should be able to say to them, hey, we do a lot for you. Stop, you know, come on, get your act together. Shari Hamid, it's been a really fascinating interview and, and I've, uh, I've extended the interview beyond our allocated time. So my apologies for that. But uh, No, no, I, I was happy to continue. I really enjoyed this. So uh, thanks so much for having me, Mohammed. And it's great. And I, I hope to have you back on. But I would love to, I would love to stay in touch. And I, this is really great. And uh, what's next for you, Shadi? I mean, have you got a have you got any books in the pipeline? So um, what's next for me? So I am finishing up a new book. Um, it actually does relate to quite a bit of what we talked about um, on resolving the Islamist dilemma. So I basically use the Islamist dilemma in the Middle East to have a broader conversation about the problem of democracy. How do we contend with the fact that democracy doesn't produce the outcomes that we prefer, which is now no longer just a Middle East issue. I remember back in the day, I thought it was primarily a Middle East question because of Islamist parties coming to power. But now it's clear that people all over the world are grappling with this question. And I think it really allows us to crystallize, you know, why do we why do we believe in democracy? Is is democracy a means to other ends, or is democracy an end to itself? Um, and those those questions to me are some of the most fascinating ones because they relate to fundamental questions about what it means to be human and what it means to be political. So that's currently what I'm working on, and it should be out, um, uh, God willing, next uh, next year. Um, and uh, so that's sort of what's on my mind now, but I'll continue doing the things that, you know, I've been doing my preoccupation with the role of Islam in public life and the role of religion more broadly. That's great. And uh, well, thank you for your time today, uh, Shadi. And um, uh, inshallah, we'll, we'll, we'll invite you back sometime uh, in the future as well. Thank you for, for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.